All right, divine judgment lesson number four. And hopefully by now you're learning judgment isn't such a bad thing. We are such a rebellious culture that we are highly allergic to anything that looks like criticism. And of course, we're teaching that to our children by the time they're two and three years old. And then by the time you're a full-fledged 40-year-old, you are just about a useless human being because you don't want any kind of criticism or critique and you fall apart when, when really a lot of criticism, critique, and judgment is for your benefit. Amen. So that's why we're teaching it to, in a sense, reestablish the biblical doctrine of judgment. So this is lesson four, and we're moving into the next stages of that spectrum we looked at, the first two lessons. And these are the forms of judgment called correction, rebuke, and resistance. Did you know correction is a form of judgment? Yeah, that's pretty simple. If you're corrected, someone judged you, found you wrong, and set you aright. And if you're humble and hungry, you want to be corrected because you don't want to keep doing it the wrong way. You don't want to do your job the wrong way. You don't want to stand a bat at the baseball diamond and bat the wrong way. You don't, if you want to be good at something, you don't want to be wrong. You want to be correct. So we have to learn that if we're going to be good at anything, it's going to take a lot of correction. And you're never going to be good at anything being prideful. Prideful people will never excel at anything but failure. So then there's the rebuke. Uh, we, we kind of a if we're resistant to correction, you know we're going to be allergic to rebuking. And then there's resistance that comes from God. If we reject rebuking and reject correction, all God's left to do at that point is resist us. So we're going to look at all this. We have been studying divine judgment using a spectral model. That means a spectrum from self-judgment all the way to destruction. And every step of the way is another increment or an escalation of judgment. We covered last week self-judgment. If we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. And if anybody ever has to rebuke us, it's because somewhere along the way we didn't judge ourselves. Any worse or increasing escalation of judgment that befalls us typically happens because we failed our responsibility in the lesser parts. Not all is lost, so don't fall apart, but just adjust it so that you can uh, avoid more rebukes. I don't mind being rebuked, but if I have to be rebuked over the same thing twice, shame on me. Amen. We're not, I shouldn't be that dumb. Swat my hand once. I mean, the whole purpose, purpose of a rebuke is so that they say in their heart, I'll never do that again. But what does it say when you have to be rebuked over the same thing a hundred times other than go find another job? If you have to be rebuked over the same thing a hundred times, you're either stubborn or low IQ and what they would call a hundred years ago an imbecile. Just, just developmentally challenged. And at that point, you don't rebuke those people anymore. You just understand they just don't get it. That shouldn't be us, though. We don't have any imbeciles in this church. Oh, amen. We have seen this, uh, seen that all judgment should begin with self-judgment, and that's why we're constantly studying and asking the Lord to correct us, show us where we're wrong. That's self-judgment. When self-judgment fails, the Bible teaches us to expect correction and even a rebuke from our loving God. Rebukes show that somebody loves you and believes in you. Fear not. Everyone needs corrections. And everyone gets rebuked from time to time. All of this is designed by God to keep sin out of our life and to prevent us from earning his resistance, which is really the last point. Before, after, after you get to the resistance stage, things start unraveling rapidly. And we don't ever want to get there. We've all been resisted by God. It's miserable. 
That's the last option he has before he begins crushing things in your life or before the enemy is given permission to absolutely own you. And that's what's going to kind of, uh, we'll spend the last half. This is probably going to be an eight-lesson curriculum on talking about passive versus aggressive judgment. What happens when God just takes his hands off of you and abandons you? What does that look like? And then there's the divine opposition where it's not just God letting the enemy own you. God himself fights against you. Uh, when he takes his hand off of you, it's, it's kind of, you don't know what's going to happen. When he fights against you, it's assured destruction. And we want to make sure we, knew, we don't come anywhere near the end of that spectrum. We just stay in the correction zone. Self-judgment and correction, maybe the occasional rebuke, and then we're back to just correction, 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 and getting better. Amen. Amen. All judgment, we got to remember the point of this whole curriculum, all judgment has the same basic goal, to prevent or remove sin. That's what it's all about. That's the whole purpose of judgment. It's not to send you to hell. It's to prevent you from going to hell. It's to prevent you from failing. It's to prevent you from being selfish. It's to prevent you from being arrogant. That's all it all judgment's for. And if we could judge ourselves on the front end, we could find it ourselves and avoid calamity or loss or hurt. So our first point we want to look at, the next step on this spectrum, is correction. Correction is a form of biblical judgment. Correction implies judgment has taken place and a fault, error, or inaccuracy was found, and a realignment, an adjustment, or a rectification was delivered. There's nothing wrong with being corrected unless you're prideful. Prideful people can't stand to be corrected. Humble people, man, correct me in front of everybody. I don't care. I just don't want to be wrong. I don't care who corrects me. I don't care if it's a dog. I don't care if it's Coco the gorilla sign-languaging to me through the glass at the Atlanta Zoo. Coco's dead now, by the way. But Coco could sign, you know, you're wrong, and I'd be like, okay, I'm wrong. <laughs> Somebody with a PhD could correct some people, and they'd say, you're, you don't know what you're talking about. You're just being judgy. Man, I don't care. Ride it in the sky with one of those airplanes. You're wrong. Okay, I'm wrong. Give it to me on a billboard. I don't care. Text it to me. I just don't want to be wrong. Some folks would just rather double down on foolishness and save face. And once you're dead, we will all know you were wrong. But we knew you were wrong to begin with. Amen. Correction is wonderful and welcomed when you are humble. Humble people don't want to be wrong or inaccurate. Only the arrogant are offended at correction. So you can judge yourself, even if you fail to self-judge, you get to self-judge when correction comes and when you can see how you respond. And if you get bristled, if your fur gets, your feathers get ruffled, if your fur's all mangied up, when correction comes, that's self-judgment. You realize, all right, there's some pride there. Not only was I wrong, I'm also prideful. I was prideful and wrong. So now you got two strikes against you. Don't strike out when the option comes to repent. Only the arrogant are offended at corrections. Let's look at a couple of verses. Job 5.17, Behold, happy is the man whom God blesses with new cars and new shoes. That's the Christian television gospel. Happy is the man whom God corrects. Happy. Happy. Therefore, despise not thou the chastening of the Almighty. It's a choice. You can be happy when you're corrected or you can be angry. One of the Hebrew words for correction is mukar. With 30 uses, the greatest occurrence is found in Proverbs. 30 times it's used in Proverbs. 
Much wisdom can be obtained through correction. And obviously, if correction comes, it means you have a hole in your wisdom or a hole in your ability. And if, if nobody wants to go through life looking like a spaghetti strainer, just full of holes. So embrace the correction that's going to come along and fill all these holes. If your boat's leaking, you're happy to have a cork. Amen. And, and you ought to be going on and saying, somebody give me a cork. Anybody got a cork? And you're not going to get mad when somebody says, hey, you need a cork. You want a cork? Only an idiot would say, who are you to judge me? I'm the guy with corks. And you're the guy with the leaking boat. <laughs> Proverbs 1.17, the, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and correction. In the King James, Proverbs uses the word instruction a lot, but it's the word correction. Because they are, to some degree, synonymous. To be instructed means you lacked information that you needed, and now here it comes. And even arrogant people, they can't stand to sit in a classroom and receive information they didn't have before. Arrogant people just can't even sit there and just be assumed to be one that doesn't know. They've got to always raise their hand to contribute something to the professor or the, or the expert. Anybody been in a training classroom? You're like, shut up. Shut up. We're paying $1,000 to be in this class. We don't care what you have to contribute. Shut up. He can't even humbly receive instruction. It's mostly guys in this arena. Women are really good about just learning. Guys have always got to raise their hand to contribute to the discussion, unless it's Karen. <laughs> Karen is the middle-aged, overweight white woman who has too much social media time, who wants to judge everybody without any excellence of her own. That Karen. Fools despise wisdom and correction. How about Proverbs 3? My son, despise not the chastening of the Lord, neither be weary of his correction. For whom the Lord loves, he corrects, even as a father, the son in whom he delights. Correction proves God loves us. And we ought to be thankful for it. The last thing you want is for God to ignore you. If God ignores you, what does that signify in your life? If he doesn't answer you anymore, if he answers you and it says, I'm sorry, who are you? I would be very afraid if the hand of God is not correcting you on a somewhat regular basis. It doesn't need to be every day, but you and I know we could be corrected every day. Proverbs 15:10, correction is grievous unto him that forsaketh the way, and he that hates reproof shall die. So just stay in pride, you'll die. Just stay arrogant, you'll die. Now, we're all going to die, but by dying, we understand prematurely. You'll kill your marriage. You'll kill your career. You'll kill your ministry. You'll kill your health. You'll kill any advancement. You'll kill your promotion, and then you'll just die. That doesn't need to be any one of us. We have been given a tremendously unfair advantage by having the Holy Spirit, having a local church, and having a Bible. We ought to excel at everything if we can just have an ear that will hear and say, thank you. I'll implement the correction. The further away from God you or I get, the more grievous you and I will find correction to be. The further away from God you get, the more frustrating or embarrassing correction is. How grievous do you find correction today? This might be indicative of how far from God you are. Those close to God love his correction. <laughs> from time to time in this church, we have seasons of intense correction. And people get offended at it, and I'll have folks text me or email me or, or come confront me. You know, you're going to confront me after I preach. Yeah, aren't you a big wig? Aren't you special? You were saying that because I was here. 
Were you here? Yeah. Was I saying it? Yeah. Okay, Captain Obvious. Yeah. What's your point? You're welcome. What do you want? You're, well, you're saying, because I was here. Well, who else am I going to talk to? Well, we talked about it last week. We ought to be thankful the Holy Ghost told me to talk to you about it under the anointing with Scripture. Yay, you. You got a whole section of a sermon aimed right at you. See, that's an arrogant dingbat. What you ought to say is, Lord, I'm coming to church today. Deal with me. Behold your servant. You deal with me as you see fit. Correct me, rebuke me, promote me, encourage me. I don't care what you got. It's good and perfect. And you might come with that attitude and you get promotion that Sunday or in that sermon. You might get a little medal pinned on your chest. But you keep acting like a ding-dong, you're just going to have a dunce cap set on your head every service. It's going to get bigger and bigger, and then we're going to put a little whirly bird propeller on top. It's a little blue light special. <laughs> Correction is grievous unto him that forsakes the way. Jeremiah 5, 3. O Lord, are not thine eyes upon the truth? Thou hast stricken them, but they have not grieved. Thou hast consumed them, but they have not, uh, excuse me, they have refused to receive correction. They have made their faces harder than a rock. They have refused to return or repent. Jeremiah is weeping over his nation, and he's saying, you have smitten them, you've stricken them, they were not grieved, you've consumed them, but they refuse to receive correction. And that's one of the truths about correction. We can put it out there, your boss can put it out there, a lesson can put it out there, the Holy Ghost can put it out there, and you can totally refuse it. And you can double down on self-righteousness and say, what do they know? Who do they think they are? Well, you know, they're not perfect either. All these are equalizing terms. And all this really is is self-righteousness. And Jesus Christ warned his disciples, except your righteousness exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees, you will no wise enter the kingdom of heaven. Uh, basically, you can go to hell thinking you're right by always bringing everybody down. We've got to be of such a humble heart that even a pagan could correct us and we could see the truth in it. Even when the media critiques the church and runs the church down, I'll look for it to look for a way I can maybe plug the gap so their mouths can be stopped. Like right now, they're running churches down because you're supposed to love your neighbor, and by having church, you're not loving your neighbor. Well, since when am I going to let you use my Bible against me again? How come it's about me loving the neighbor? How come you can't love me? And what you really mean is I have to adjust my entire lifestyle to cater to your fear. So how about you love me and get out of your fear? And if you're afraid, just stay home. I saw 8,000 people at Walmart last night. There's no fear there. It was a zoo. Ain't nobody in there obeying nothing. No social distancing, no masks. Hey, they was, they was, it was London down those freeways up and down. Everybody was going each way, and we were like, you're going to be mad? I'm not, I'm not even mad. I just, I just want some diced carrots. I just want some diced tomatoes. Nobody cared. This is a zoo. It's worse than Black Friday and Christmas Eve combined. <laughs> there wasn't a single buggy in the foyer. That's how worked over it was. Yeah. Yeah, they were all out in the parking lot. That's why I don't like this whole uh, love your neighbor. So when the media starts saying, you Christians, you're going back to church, you're supposed to love your neighbor. I look for truth in that correction. I look for truth in that critique. Is there any element of truth there, or are they just ignorant pagans? And let me see what I can do to assuage them. We have to be able to receive correction from anybody. Amen. If you're afraid, you stay home. 
I'm not staying home to help your fear. I have a family to feed. Refusing correction results in a hardening of the heart. That's what Jeremiah said. They have made their faces harder than a rock. That is why we cannot resist correction. We can't refuse it. We have to be thankful for it. Even if it's hard to swallow, take it home with you and be thankful for it. One of the reasons we often refuse correction, not counting pride, is because we just don't want to change our ways. And we've all received correction and try to discount it or minimize it or excuse it away. And that is a dangerous, dangerous thing. If everybody around you is pointing out the same thing, you're wrong. Remember, Proverbs says, a fool is more wise in their own eyes than seven men that can render a reason. If, if everybody's saying the same thing, you're not the right one. You're the wrong one. Amen. Especially when everybody's saying it loves God and loves you and fears the Holy Ghost and knows the Bible. So you got to take note that maybe you're just dead wrong and change. Jeremiah 7, 28. But thou shalt say unto them, this is a nation that obeys not the voice of their God, nor receives correction. Truth is perished and is cut off from their mouth. So you can push this thing so far, it becomes your reputation. That person cannot be corrected. Or in this case, that nation cannot be corrected. They will not receive correction. May that never be our testimony. Not as a person, not as a family, not as a parent, not as a church, not as a city, not as a nation. For correction to be effective when given, it must be received. Only when uh, only we can control whether it is received or not. And the source of the correction should be irrelevant. You ought to be able to get a Cracker Jacks joke that can correct you and you receive it. Miss Susan tells a story years ago. She was reading a children's book to her girls when they were little. They're all grown now, so it lets you know how long ago it was. But the book was called Tina the Truthful Tiger. And she's testified about this publicly. But she would read this book about Tina the Truthful Tiger. She was this tiger that was just too truthful. And so Tina the Truthful Tiger lacked tact. And every time she'd read that, she'd get under gross conviction just by reading a children's book. A children's book meant to teach children about Tina the Truthful Tiger was convicting a grown, spirit-filled woman. We don't care where the correction comes from. Thank God she's spiritual enough to go, this is God talking to me through my children's book. That's just like the Holy Ghost to do that to us. Amen. When correction is rejected, truth begins to perish and will eventually be cut off. It's even cut out of people's mouths. You, that's why it's so hard to listen to, to people who, who can't receive correction because e, the, the truth level of their mouth begins to diminish more and more. People who can receive correction, they speak truth more purely. It just gets more and more pure. Like the issue with the media. The media can't receive correction. They can't ever be wrong. They just double down. They retract stories six months later at the bottom on the back page of the New York Times. The media is not a source of truth at all. It's a source of propaganda, even the conservative kinds we like. It's all propaganda. But it also, it's gotten that way because they can't be corrected. They can't admit they're wrong. It's just a giant one-upmanship. Don't let it be us. I, could, I gave you one or two other verses on correction. <laughs> just so you would know it's biblical. <laughs> and just our next section, just so you know that it's not just God that corrects you, God uses others to correct us. 
Lest we think we can get off the hook easily, remember God uses people to correct us, especially authority figures such as parents, bosses, church leaders, etc. So the father, fathers, parents, Proverbs 1.8 says, My son, hear the correction of your father. Forsake not the law of mama. That's Proverbs. That's chapter 1. That's the introduction to the whole book of wisdom. Get it from mom and dad while you still can. Dad and mom were the first people to ever correct us. That's how God ordained it. Probably from the first time we were six, seven months old, we began to spit carrots out or peas out. Mama looked at us and said, don't do that again. And we went, and that little hand got popped. Correction began, and it didn't stop. God is so merciful, he lets your first correction come from the very woman who bore you, who breastfed you, who held you more than anybody. Isn't it a shock to a baby's system? The very thing that created me, the very thing that brought me life, the very thing that loves me more than anything else is the first to correct me because it's still love. It's the total picture of God. And now we're living in a generation that doesn't think God will rebuke, correct, chastise, or cut off. But mama, she bore us. Mama gave us life. Mama nursed us. Mama's the one that pours into us more than anybody, especially those first five years. And then what shock to the little child's system when mama's the first one to give pain. And welcome to the kingdom, six-month-old. It's going to be that way the rest of your life. The very God that loves you more than anything, who gave you life, will be the one that swats you the hardest because he loves us. Now, or you can fabricate a fake genie Jesus that does nothing but bless you and answer your wishes and wants help let you wish upon a star, then you command him to make it come to pass. But that's not the God of the Bible. That's the God of America. Bosses. Did you know bosses are ordained of God to chew your tail? Titus 2, 9, 10 NASB says, urge bond slaves. And we're using this as a, a pattern for employees to be subject to their own masters and everything, to be well-pleasing and not argumentative. No boss wants someone who argues with everything. That person will be let go when we have to shut the nation again and will never be hired again. Not pilfering. That means you don't embezzle, not even pencils or erasers from your boss, but showing all good faiths that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. Implicit in the admonition to not argue is the presence of correction. Most employees only become combative when confronted with correction. Anybody say amen to that? And when you're an employee, don't be argumentative. If your boss has to correct you, be apologetic that you failed somewhere. Even if he's unreasonable, learn his unreasonableness. He got promoted somehow when you didn't. So there might be a few things to learn from even the Pakistani Muslim who hates you as a Christian, but is giving you lots of money to do geology. There can be something learned from anybody in a place of power. How about a minister or a preacher? This is out of the Amplified. Herald and preach the word. Keep your sense of urgency. Stand by, be at hand, and be ready. Whether the opportunity seems to be favorable or unfavorable, whether it is convenient or inconvenient, whether it's welcomed or unwelcome, you as a preacher of the word are to show people in what way they are wonderful. Your job is to show people in what way their lives are wrong. That is my job description. That ain't the buddy Jesus that everybody wants today, and we don't stand at the back door and hug you on your way out. But we will hug you because I'm a hugger. Even in the midst of Coroni, I'm a hugger. 
But my job, if I'm going to answer to God, is to show you in what way your life is wrong. And that can be as difficult as you want it to be. Convince them. Now, that doesn't do it. You can't hold their hand and pat the other one and convince them. Sometimes you jerk on that hand. Rebuking and correcting, warning and urging and encouraging them, being unflagging and inexhaustible in patience and teaching. That's my job as a preacher. And I know my job. Your job is to learn. I teach, you catch. I lead, you follow. I instruct, you practice. And if you fail any of that, then you get rebuked. One of the pastor's central roles is to rebuke, correct, warn, urge, and encourage. Nowhere in that list is visiting you. That's a southern tradition. Nowhere in that is me going to the hospital to be with you. That's a job given to the elders in James 5, and that's your responsibility to call them. Southern tradition has put all these unbiblical expectations that aren't necessarily bad, but you, the more you heap them on, the preacher, the less he's able to do his biblical job. So I, I go to the hospital. I will come and visit you, but I've learned in this town, certain folks have come to expect me to be a Church of Christ preacher, and I am not Church of Christ, and I ain't your preacher. I'm a pastor. And I'm a Holy Ghost guy. And my job, first and foremost, as Paul told Pastor Timothy, is to correct, rebuke, and to show you where you're wrong. And then to train you up according to Ephesians to do the work, raise up elders to go pray for the sick once they've called for them. If you don't call, we don't go. Amen. So I, I like protocol. I like it laid out because I can stick to the rules. The reason these other churches want other expectations is because they don't read their own Bible. Rebuke and reproof. We escalate now. If you can't catch the correction, we have to escalate to rebukes and reproofs. For simplicity's sake, I'll lump rebuke and reproof together. They're synonymous for the most part. A rebuke can be viewed as a sharp or strong correction. A, a proof is generally a much softer censure. Both are only necessary if normal correction is ignored or rejected. You only need a rebuke when you're lazy or insubordinate, when you're neglectful. You don't rebuke proactive people. There's no reason to. Lazy people get rebuked. Prideful people get rebuked. Insubordinate people get rebuked. Pompous people get rebuked. Neglectful people get rebuked because there has to be a, a sharpness. You didn't catch it. Obviously, you didn't catch it. Let me show you with my words how important this is. Whoa, chill out. No, I'm not going to chill out. You be obedient. Telling the corrector to chill out is an equalizing technique learned when you're two. Man, chill out. You're uptight. That's you trying to control the leadership. I'm not uptight. You're too loose. Oh, man, you just need to relax. You need to get with the program. I don't need to relax. You need to tighten up. And that's, we've all heard those expressions. Man, what's wrong with them? Then they walk away from the boss, walk away from the professor, walk away from the pastor. What's up with them today? Now you've gone to the gainsaying of Korah. Nothing wrong with them. Why do they have to rebuke you? Are you that insubordinate or just that much of a Johnny dum-dum? They've got an assignment. They've been promoted. They've got to answer to God, and they've got to drag you along the way. I thought you wanted to be here. If you don't want to be here, go to a church where there's 10,000 people, and you can just drift in, drift out, and go to hell, and nobody would know. But that's not how this kingdom works. If you won't learn from simple correction, a rebuke may be just what the situation calls for. 
So I gave you one or two verses on rebukes. John 16, 8, And when the Holy Spirit has come, He will reprove, that is, rebuke and convict, the world of sin. He'll rebuke the world of righteousness, and He'll rebuke the world of judgment. So that's one of the main ministries of the Holy Spirit, rebuking, reproving. So when you're led by the Holy Ghost, you're not just winking at people telling them they're going to have their best Tuesday ever. Sometimes the leadings of the Holy Ghost do bring a correction and a rebuke and a reproof. Proverbs 1.23, Solomon, or actually David to Solomon said, Turn you at my reproof. Behold, I will pour out of my spirit unto you. I will make known my words unto you. So if you can receive a rebuke, the Holy Ghost gets poured out and you get to see more of God's word. If you resist a rebuke, the Holy Ghost will be dried up and you'll know less of God. That's a promise from Proverbs chapter 1. I will pour out of my spirit upon you. That's Acts chapter 2. Quoting the prophet Joel. Proverbs 1, 30. They would none of my counsel. They despised all my reproof. Therefore shall they eat the fruit of their own doing or their own way and be filled with their own devices. So this warns us that we can reject counsel and we can reject reproof. Notice counsel came first. That would be correction or instruction. Because they rejected that, they got rebuked. They rejected that as well. And when you reject that, all you get is the direction you were headed anyway. And the reason you got instruction and correction and rebuke was because you were headed the wrong direction. So really all this comes so that we stay on the right path. And nobody's designed to lead themselves in perfection. We have to have so many checks and balances around us. A local body, brothers and sisters, the Word of God, the Holy Spirit, a pastor, a preacher. Dreams and visions will save your life if you get to be just way beyond out there. Never get into pride because you've had a dream or a vision. Job says he gives dreams and visions to those that won't listen while they're awake. So sometimes a dream and a vision come because basically he's got to wait till you're unconscious and then talk to you. <laughs> I wonder if that's God trying to talk to me. Yes, it is. Proverbs 15, 31 in the Christian Standard Bible. One who listens to life-giving rebukes will be at home among the wise. That means you love being around holy, clean people. If you're uncomfortable in church, you're testifying to how you receive correction, which is not well. I like that version. One who listens to life-giving rebukes will be at home among the wise. Proverbs 17.10, A rebuke cuts into a perceptive person more than a hundred lashes into a fool. It hurts. It was meant to. You hurt my feelings. I'm sorry. I was going for your heart. I'll whip harder next time. <laughs> Why did it have to come out so harsh? You know, when you're soft all, and your heart is humble, all your leader has to do is look at you. Uh, I know it. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. How come it took a scalding message? How come it took getting called into the boss's office, the door shut? What is wrong with us that it takes the lashes? Why can't it just be, hey, you did it again. Ah, I know it. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. A rebuke only comes when your heart is hardened and stubborn. When you're soft, you don't need a rebuke. You can get a nice reproof. It's a simple call to the office. Your boss says, hey, we've talked about this once before. Ah, you know, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. 
this will not happen again. I, I promise you by the grace of God, Mr. Boss Man, I will not have to be in here over this situation again. But if you get in there and you start defending yourself and acting like they're unreasonable, that reproof will escalate to a hard rebuke. And if you keep pushing it, you'll walk out of there delivered with a pink slip. Why does it take such a hard lashing on some of us, except that we're prideful, stubborn, arrogant, and just doubling down on our own wrong way? It ought to be obvious we don't have it all together because of the quality of our life. That's why the church sets in front of us people God's endorsing and God's promoting. And if we'd look to them and follow after them as an epistle, our lives could be so much better. But it's always the folks whose life stinks that think they know it all. And I've had to tell people from time to time, Pastor, I I disagree with you. I just want you to know I think you're wrong. And I'll say, that's fine. And you've got, as long as you've got some Bible verses, I'll, I'll listen to you. But I just want you to know between your life and my life, you don't qualify to disagree with me. Because God doesn't endorse you or promote you. And I don't say that arrogantly, but look at your life. Look at your marriage. Look at how you act. I don't know why you think you have a leg to stand on here. A rebuke cuts into a perceptive person more than a hundred lashes into a fool. Proverbs 29, 15. The rod and reproof, or the rod and rebuke, give wisdom. But a child who gets his own way brings shame to his mother. Mom is always the one that hurts the most over the wayward child. But this implies that you are not just rebuking your child, you're also spanking them. You're both rebuking and spanking and spanking and rebuking. If you leave them to their own devices, you'll be ashamed the rest of your life. We don't want that. And then Amos 5.10, they hate him that rebuketh in the gate. That's why they go to the secret church. And they abhor him that speaketh uprightly. Amos, public rebuke and upright speech are synonymous. Both are hated by the prideful and the sinful. Both are loved by the humble and the righteous. So I gave you another two verses or so on rebuking and reproving in the scriptures, just so you know that it's biblical and it's, bu- it's judgment. When you have to be rebuked, it's a, it's a sign from God you're arrogant or insubordinate. If somebody has to raise their voice at you who normally doesn't, you're the problem. I get it. There are people who are just, they have one temperature and it's angry. I get it. But you can learn something from them too. They're looking to be set off. But if you're working for somebody or submitted to somebody or married to somebody and they don't ever really get it fluffed and they're fluffed at you and they're bringing the heat, you better be quiet, hold your peace and change. God uses others to rebuke and reprove us. So, lest we think we get off the hook, easily get off the hook, God also uses people to rebuke us. Because you could easily say, well, the Lord's never rebuked me. Well, that's okay. Your boss has. Your teacher has. Your mama has. He'll use especially authority figures such as parents, bosses, church leaders. So the father, Hebrews 12 says, Furthermore, we have had fathers who corrected us, that is, disciplined us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days reproved us as seemed best to them. But he reproves us for our profit that we may be partakers of his holiness. Remember, we have said and we will keep saying the purpose of all judgment is to eliminate sin and usher in holiness. We can all testify that our fathers have rebuked and chastened us. 
Godly fathers do so in line with the word. Even pagan dads will rebuke for lying and stealing. They might, after they've rebuked you for lying and stealing, they might spank you with a belt and then share a beer with you. I, when I grew up in Baton Rouge, our next-door neighbors, this is the late 70s, early 80s, Keith and Todd were their names. And uh, they had all the cool Star Wars stuff in 79, 80, 81. But Keith and Todd, this is Louisiana. Louisiana's full of drunks. They're good at two things, football and drinking. And Keith and Todd were my age and maybe a little bit older, and they would share their dad's beer with them. And that's just how it was. They wouldn't get drunk, but they'd go, dad sitting in the backyard, they'd walk up and they, they were free to take a drink of their dad's beer. <laughs> Can't make it up. I remember that. I just remember it very clearly. Your boss can rebuke you. Ecclesiastes 10.4, the New Living Translation says, if your boss is angry at you, a quiet spirit can overcome even great mistakes. Great mistakes. That means you messed up and you're being chewed out. Just shut up. <laughs> King James says, if the spirit of your ruler is, is uh, risen against thee, hold thy peace for yielding pacifies great offenses. Just be quiet. Just say, yes, sir, I'm sorry. I'm sorry you have to chew me out again. But man, arrogant people want to fight. They just want to double down on their own righteousness and that will get resistance from God. The minister... Excuse me, let's go back and read this. If your boss is angry at you, what did you do? You know a rebuke could be right around the corner. Hold your peace and yield. It will pacify great offenses. Your minister, Titus 2.15, uh, Paul told Pastor Titus, these things speak and exhort and tell everybody how wonderful they are every service and shoot a t-shirt gun at them and set up a nacho bar in the foyer to draw more pagans. These things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no man despise thee. That sounds a little authoritarian. That sounds like when you walk into that church, there's no mistaking who's in charge. You don't mistake the senior pastor for the youth leader or for the sound guy. Pastors are authorized to rebuke. It's one of our tools for building the kingdom. That's what we do. We don't want to do it. I, I don't like rebuking. It makes me uncomfortable unless I'm in the pulpit. And then this is totally different. This is Samson in front of Philistines. In my office, I don't want to rebuke. I don't have no Philistine killing anointing on me in my office. It's like, help me help you. Just get with the program. We know the rules by now. Let's just march. So far, we've seen that God uses correction and rebuke to protect us from sin and error. However, should we ignore the correction, earn a rebuke, and then resist the rebuke, God has no choice but to begin imposing divine resistance. I've got to go through this quick because I want to get to the section on Balaam. The purpose of divine resistance is to bring us safely back from sin. By resisting us, God deprives us of his grace and help, and that is horrible. The resulting frustration, calamity, and chaos is intended to draw us back to the goodness of God. Because hopefully you can remember when the grace of God was on you, when the favor of God was on you, and the ease of God was on you. And you're like, this stinks. I'm no dummy. I'm going back there. It's cold out here. It was warm in there. Romans 2, 4b says, Not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. 
it's not goodness drawing you. It's you were once in the goodness. He put you out. Now you'll do whatever you can to get back in. Like the prodigal, realize it was so much better at my father's house. God's resistance is divine judgment. It isn't sending you to hell. It isn't destroying your life, but it is divine judgment. It is God withholding his goodness, not his mercy, though. He'll always be merciful. It's him withholding his goodness from us. It is cause for much frustration, angst, anxiety, exhaustion, and breakdown. And we've all been there. We've all been frustrated. Nothing was working. Everything was an uphill push. It was a lead sled pushed up concrete on gravel uphill. And it used to be so easy. God intends for the believer being resisted to recognize that they have lost the grace and favor of God and that they would say in their heart like the prodigal, I will arise and go back to my father's house. Why? Because it was so much better back there. We see here God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So you can have the grace, the, mercy, uh, the, the help of God taken away from you just by an attitude. Resistance can be likened to standing in the way of someone. When God resists us, he simply stands in our way and things get a lot harder. Anybody ever been there? More than you should have been? <laughs> of course. And honestly, the longer we live in the grace of God and the longer we live in the favor of God and the goodness of God, the more quickly you recognize when it begins to wane or dry up and you start judging yourself. Whoa, whoa, whoa. What did I do? What, where did I let the water out? Where did I drain the oil out? Why is this thing getting, why is it running hot now? Why is it running rough? What changed? And that, that, that just dip in favor and grace should cause self-judgment. So you begin back at the front of our spectrum. When God resists us, he simply stands in our way and things get a lot harder. Pride causes God to stand in our way. This is very similar to Balaam and his donkey being blocked by the angel of the Lord. So let's look at their Numbers 22, 32. The angel of the Lord said unto Balaam, excuse, uh, why have you smitten your ass these three times? Behold, I went out to withstand thee because your way is perverse, reckless, and rash before me. So the angel of the Lord says, why have you hit your donkey three times? I am standing in your way. That's resistance. Because I find what you're doing rash and reckless. The angel of the Lord admits that his assignment was to go before Balaam and resist him. And we've all experienced that. Whether we realize, I believe many times it is an angel that makes our life miserable. We have Psalms that back that up. We have a Bible story here that backs that up. Why? Because of Balaam's rash pride. We can literally see the type of frustration and breakdowns that being resisted by God produces. Now look at this. In this story, I think we know the story, Balaam's riding the donkey. He's going to see Balak to curse the Israelites. And the donkey goes and he's walking and he sees this angel and the donkey starts to move into the field. He just takes a 90 into the field and he starts getting whipped. Balaam's once faithful donkey suddenly becomes stubborn because of the resistance of God. This is symbolic of the resisted life suddenly becoming more difficult than usual. If all of a sudden you're just going down life serving God and all of a sudden your life just goes out of 90 into the field, it's time to chill out and say, all right, why did my donkey just turn a 90? <laughs> he has to whip the donkey to get obedience out of her, something he had never had to do before. This is symbolic of things in life beginning to require way more work than usual. 
Balaam's foot gets crushed when the donkey steps to the side. This is symbolic of personal injury and loss. All because an angel is standing in the way, resisting. Finally, the donkey just plops right down and goes nowhere. This is symbolic of total breakdowns in momentum and favor. Blinded by his frustration, Balaam beats the donkey and argues with her and sees nothing bizarre about it. The guy has yet to judge himself and figure out what's going on with my donkey and why am I arguing with it? And it's arguing back. This is symbolic of the typical situation we find ourselves in when God is implementing resistance judgment. We find ourselves frustrated, beating on and yelling at at things to make them work rather than simply humbling ourselves and asking God for help. If it ain't working, just scream at it. (laughs) If it ain't working, get a hammer and beat it into submission. You never had to scream at it before. You never had to beat on it before. Why now? This should implement self-judgment. We go back to the very beginning. All right, Lord, what's wrong here? My vehicles never break down. I've had a, a string of bad luck, as they call it. What's going on? All of a sudden, I fell out of favor with my boss, fell out of favor with my pastor, fell out of favor. What's going on? The moment Balaam repented, the donkey arose and God granted him permission to carry on. All he had to do was repent. He said, I have sinned. And the angel says, you're permitted. Had Balaam not repented, the angel warned, I would surely have killed you just now and let the donkey live. And then you find out that this angel is the Lord Jesus because he says, when you go, you speak the words I give to you. And he prophesies about the scepter coming out of Jacob. The Lord Jesus resisting a prophet because of rashness. It's a pretty cool type and shadow there. Because I think we've all been there, man. We've been beating that donkey, screaming at it, and it's going, what are you doing? Why are you yelling at me? Haven't I always been faithful? Should that not be weird to you? The fact that we're talking to each other, is that not weird to you? (laughs) Shut up, donkey. And lest we think we get off the hook easily, God also uses people to resist us, especially authority figures such as parents, bosses, and church leaders. Romans 16 tells us we avoid and turn away from divisive believers. That means we resist them at the door. If you, won't be, if you can't be allowed in a church, time to judge yourself. Paul resisted and withstood Peter after he had withdrawn from the Gentiles out of fear of the Jews. So Paul was resisting Peter over uh, anti-Semitic, uh, excuse me, anti-Gentile hypocrisy. Ephesians 5.11 says, have no fellowship, which means resist. Uh, have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather rebuke them or reprove them. We don't just resist dirty believers. We are called to rebuke them for their chosen lifestyle in hopes of restoring them. 2 Thessalonians says, Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother. We have permission to keep away from brothers or sisters who lead an unruly life and not according to the traditions which you have received from us. So we're commanded to resist people, but all we're doing when we resist people is obey the Holy Ghost. If the Holy Spirit is resisting Mr. Earl, I don't get to undo the judgment of the Holy Spirit. And if I'm truly led by the Holy Spirit and God is resisting Earl, I'll have to resist Earl. Gertie and I were just talking. There's a a minister who actually will probably die in the next month or so of, of a bizarre cancer. 
And Gertie and I have been talking about this minister for about two years, but it was about a year ago you said, Pastor, I just have no permission to listen to this man anymore. And he's a great, great minister. He said, I just don't have grace to listen to him anymore. And then this thing comes out that he was having an illicit affair. And then she wanted a shakedown of money. He was willing to pay her off. And he kind of covered the whole thing. Then it came out that a lot of his credentials were phony. And now he's about to die of cancer, all within a year and a half. And so this is kind of one of those examples. God began to resist this minister, even though he had 40 years of great ministry, and it's bearing witness with Gertie's spirit. If God's resisting him, I need to back up too. Just like when God began to resist Korah, he told Moses, tell everybody else, move away. And where we often miss it is we try to have fellowship with people God is not fellowshipping with. And that becomes dangerous for us. That's when we violate Timothy, when Timothy says, do not become partaker of another man's sins. Lay hands suddenly on no man. Why would you? To lay hands means to promote them, to endorse them. You have to make sure, is God resisting them? Because if God's resisting them and I'm promoting them, God's against me now. So we have to do this thing very cautiously. Even the brethren are, avoid, uh, are to avoid and keep away from those who refuse to repent. And so then I give you some other examples of resisting in the New Testament. May we judge ourselves, happily seek correction, receive chastisement like a soldier, hoo-ah, and avoid never knowing or avoid knowing the resisting power of God. Amen. Father, we thank you for these lessons. Help us to understand divine judgment, even as we're just now beginning to bark into the, the wrathful, vengeance, destructive, eternal damnation, divine curse, judgment of God. We've understood these early stages. May this be the, the wonderful foundation we can understand the future lessons on. Illuminate our understanding. Bless all those that listen by pod school in the future, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.